back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are more than 100 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my past episodes on any podcast app and listen to them all. On today's show, I'm pleased to welcome Janet H., whom I've known for many years from our attendance at a popular AA club in Houston. Though I've heard bits and pieces of her story along the way, I'm pleased to have sat down with her recently to learn more about her journey over the past 39 years of sobriety. Janet's family of origin was rife with alcoholism, but also some recovery. Her father remained sober in AA for nearly 50 years. When she was a little girl, Janet even attended some AA meetings early in her father's sobriety. But like so many alcoholics, Janet's own foray into drinking was undeterred by family history or her father's experience, though years before quitting herself, she did ask him for a copy of the big book. At 17, Janet started drinking and progressed through high school, college, and early jobs thereafter, with few consequences from her increasingly frequent drinking. But her pattern of alcohol consumption showed the usual signs of trouble. Steady withdrawal from relationships, isolation from friends and family, and growing depression. Though she sought treatment for her co-occurring depression, it wasn't until Janet's realization that alcohol was running side by side with depression, with derailment of her life not far ahead. By the time she found AA in 1983, she had become emotionally, physically, and spiritually wrecked, with little hope of redemption. But she persevered during her early days of sobriety by attending meetings and just not drinking. Over time, she got a sponsor, worked the steps, and commenced her service work as a sponsor. Janet claimed her seat in the middle of the program, and she's worked through many challenges over the nearly four decades to stay here. Her commitment and dedication to AA is evident to all, as is her willingness to help other alcoholics. I believe you'll find Janet's story to be exemplary of good long-term recovery in the program. Her approach to sobriety is both instructive and inspiring. So, please enjoy the next hour and ten minutes with my friend and AA sister, Janet H. My name is Janet, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Janet. Thanks so much for joining me today on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. You're very welcome. You and I just came out of a really terrific meeting here at our club. Now, I always anonymize the name of the club, too, because I think that's part of the anonymity that people need to feel comfortable with. So I always just say the club. Mm -hmm. So you and I were just sitting in our regular noon meeting, and what a great meeting it was today. Yes, it was. It's wonderful. What did you like about this meeting especially? I think because it's the beginning of the year, a lot of people are reflecting mm -hmm. on the past and um, keeping it towards the first step and what recovery is all about. Yeah. You know, sometimes when I'm sitting in a meeting right before I do these interviews and somebody starts to share who I'm going to be interviewing, it's almost like I want to cover my ears because I don't want to be influenced in the questions I ask or the way the discussion goes by hearing them in the meeting. Yes. But you said something today that I did want to ask you about. You mentioned that the last couple of years have been really tough for you. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could kind of expand on that. Well, I um, lost my mother two years ago mm, I'm sorry. And, and needed to sell her house and 
you know, be in charge of that estate, which was difficult mm -hmm. and, um, you know, odds with my brother. And then a year ago, my stepmother passed away, mm -hmm. which was more unexpected than my mother. So we had to go through the same thing again and sell mm -hmm. a house and divide up. And, and then I lost my job in the summer and um, I was given the option to be terminated or to resign. And I was debating on what to do and I decided that I would resign. Mm -hmm. And with the condition of staying an extra month to transition my staff and, um, and to leave with my head held high rather than just, I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. So how long had you worked at that particular job? Been w at that job for almost five years, but with the, the company, uh, almost eight years. So I would have been eligible for retirement had I been there another four months. As I shared in the meeting is that sometimes there's a silver lining and, and I intend to go back go back to to where I was oh yes yes to see if I can receive my pension and and the person that um, was responsible for asking me to leave was terminated uh, a couple of days before Christmas so <laughs> so I see I see a light that there's some hope there that I can go back and and because um, I left in a professional way I'm still in good standing um, and I like a lot of the people there and what I was doing. How would you have handled that situation if you had still been drinking? I would have walked out the door or um, I actually had that situation happen while I was drinking. Of course, this was because I wasn't showing up for work after lunch, you know, or I would call in sick. Yeah. And they were very nice and said, we need you to work here. But if you're going to continue calling sick, then, you know, you, we can't keep you. So I had a I'll show you attitude. I talked to a friend of mine that was working there that was leaving to go to a better position. And, um, mm -hmm. and so I followed her, but basically said, y'all don't want me, I'm leaving. Hmm. And of course, it probably didn't make any difference to them, but I kind of went off in a huff. It was kind of sad. I'll bet. And then the job that I went to uh, with my friend where she got me in the door, mm -hmm. I consciously remember at three months saying, I'm going to have to quit because I'm going to start drinking again, and mm. she'll have to let me go too. That was at three months sober? Well, kind of. Because we're talking about a long time ago, right? Yes, we are. No, no, I did not stay sober then, but I was starting to come in the program because I did relapse after being here for, well, several times at the beginning. It's kind of like you put days together. Yeah. But after two years, and, um, and then I got sober for the time that I have now. So that was, what, 39 years ago? No, that would have been between 80 and 83. But your sobriety date is? August 6, 83. 40 years this year? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. But you made attempts to stop yes. prior to that. Yes. For, you said? In 1980 is when I first came in. What was going on in 1980 that made you think you needed to stop drinking? Depression. And somebody said to me, um, did you know that alcohol is a depressant? And I had never heard that before. And I was going to a lot of therapy mm. and go getting on antidepressants and things like that. And I thought, well, I wanted to stop the depression. Hmm. Did it work? 
Well, it started to work. I, I needed additional help. I still needed therapy. I still needed, you know, antidepressants at the time, but it helped with the, the worst low, I think. I think it started to, I saw a change because I wasn't self-medicating. So when did you first have your first drink? 17. But I wasn't drinking alcoholically back then. It was more that I even had a boyfriend that's like, oh, let's, you know, have a drink. And of course, I was a people pleaser, wanted him to like me. And I wasn't that interested in it. I didn't like it. I was actually somewhat afraid of it because my dad was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of uh, progressed. Mm -hmm. And then I started to use it. But in the beginning, not so much. That's the case for a lot of people, I think, who, who start at 13, 14, up to 17, 18 years old. Uh, I didn't really start drinking until I was about 17 or 18. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, I never never considered the fact that I might turn out to be an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. I, I love the way alcohol made me feel, but you know, at that point, who knew? Mm -hmm. But you say you grew up with an alcoholic father. What was your, your family of origin, your childhood like, uh, given that situation? Well, my, my mother and my father divorced when I was two because he, he was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So my brother and I would see him every weekend. How long did that go on? Until uh, I was eight. You knew your dad separate from the relationship that you had mm -hmm, with your mom. Mm -hmm. But it was, they got along. It was actually nice, and he would pick us up on Saturday night, and we would um, go to Otto's Hamburgers <laughs> and watch Get Smart. And uh, those are my memories. And I, But I, he got sober when I was eight. So, you know, I continued to be, a, you know, a Saturday night child, I guess. And I did go to meetings with him a few times, but I don't remember it. Maybe I was sitting out in the lobby. It's, it's kind of vague back then because you're young. Mm -hmm. But I do remember going to an ice cream parlor and everybody knew my dad in there because obviously a lot of people from the meeting would go there afterwards. And so I thought oh, my yeah. father was a celebrity because <laughs> people knew him, but it was because of his AA group. Well, in a way, he was a celebrity. He well, he was. <laughs> An anonymous celebrity, right? Yes, but I didn't know that as a kid, you know. So your exposure to AA was when you were eight years old. Mm -hmm. And was he able to stay sober? Mm -hmm. He would have had 50 years had he not passed away about four months prior to getting 50 years. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. That's gotta be a source of gratitude for you. Yes, so I did see him lead the way, so to speak. So about the time that you had the opportunity to drink, let's say either from the time you were eight until you actually did take that start drinking at 17, would you attribute any of the reluctance to drink during that period of time to your dad being in the program or what you knew about alcoholism? Yes. In what ways? Well, I knew it had caused the divorce. I knew that there were issues with that. And somehow maybe I knew inside that this could happen to me too. Hmm. And uh, not consciously, of course, it worked out well later, sure. but I, you know, would hear the stories. I think that's what it was. I heard my father tell a story one time. Hmm. He was a lawyer. He worked for my grandfather. My grandfather fired him. Of course, then he was divorced. And so he was struggling with life. And I knew the story. Hmm. But your dad stayed sober for almost 50 years. He stayed sober. Mm-hmm. I think from the time, I know once or twice he went over to detox, but there wasn't really a lot of recovery. There weren't treatment centers to my knowledge. So I know he went to detox a couple of times and um, 
and then he got sober and stayed sober. So That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were growing up and you were in school and you were around other people that were just starting to either experiment with or were actually drinking or, in some cases, using drugs, and you didn't want to do it because of the knowledge you had and the exposure you had, what would you say to those people when they say, come on, Janet, have a drink or come, come have a drink of this beer or, you know, we're smoking pot over here. Why don't you try it? Did you encounter any of that? You know, I don't remember so much pressure from any of the females. I know with this one boyfriend when I had my first drink in the beginning, I would say, I'm not thirsty. Huh. Of course, to me, it seemed like that would be a good explanation. Well, that wasn't what it was about. And um, so I think the pressure was on later because I wanted a boyfriend. Mm. I had never had a boyfriend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, but with females, not so much. Mm-hmm. I had two or three, no, two, two girlfriends that I knew from elementary school. Mm-hmm. And both their parents were alcoholics in NAA. And, um, and somehow I didn't really know what that meant, but yet I did. And, um, and interestingly enough, one of those girlfriends years later came to me and um, when I was sober and came over with her bottle of whatever it was mm-hmm. and um, was drinking and had broken up with a boyfriend and she became very interested in AA and sobriety. And I still think about that because uh, her mother and my father uh, both were trying to get sober around the same time. I don't believe her mother stayed sober. but um, And then there was another friend, too, but that I wasn't as close with. But I, I distinctly remember that in elementary school. I, I could see how that would happen, though, if your dad is in the program and any of the socializing you were doing was with other people who mm-hmm. were in the program program and their kids. It mm-hmm. would make sense that mm-hmm. you would be friends with them. So you, so you took your first drink at 17. Uh, knowing what you knew about alcohol and alcoholism from your father's experience, mm-hmm. what do the next several years look like until you realize that you might have a problem with alcohol? I think I was lost, kind of misdirected. In what ways? Just not sure about life and what direction to go. I don't believe that um, alcohol became a huge problem till I got into my 20s. And then I started to see it more as an escape and it became more normal. Also at 17, you know, I was not really so big into drugs. First of all, they were illegal. Right. And alcohol, now when I turned 18, alcohol was legal. It had just switched. But before that, it was 21. So I did have a moral compass that I wasn't, I didn't want to... <laughs> break the law (laughs) (laughs) until you were legal until I was legal and then you know I could do whatever I wanted to me I was never one that would just go out and have fun with the group it was more I had a lot of shame about it so I didn't really like to drink around people shame about drinking about drinking Uh your own drinking Mm -hmm. Hmm. and I also didn't want to be in a place where I might be out of control or somebody would see me out of control when I found that that's what would happen. Yeah. And so it became more of an isolated type activity. Doesn't that situation lend itself to loneliness and isolated drinking? Mm-hmm. When you drank, what was the feeling that you got that wanted you to keep on drinking? Escape. Escape. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. On your own, alone, mm-hmm. with the bottle. Mm-hmm. How many years did you do that for? Probably only about two years, maybe, if that. So it was all relatively concentrated, huh? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't even really tell you at the time, except I guess I'm getting out of college and facing life and a career and, you know, adulthood, mm. that that was traumatizing to me. I had been a fairly protected child, mm-hmm. and now I was out on my own, and I didn't know how to be an adult. Was there a lot of drinking in college? Not so much. Mm-hmm. So here's the story of a woman whose father is an AA, who grows up with friends whose parents are an AA, and you learn what you need to learn about drinking and not drinking from that experience. You start drinking at 17, you go through college without too much trouble in that regard, and then you started drinking for effect Mm -hmm. for a period of about two years. Mm -hmm. Does that sum up that period of time? Uh It's also long ago. It's hard to remember the timeline. I I get it. Yeah, I get it. But it wasn't ever a problem like like in college. Like I always was around people that were drinking. My boyfriend at the time was drinking all the time. He died of alcoholism in the last couple of years. My old, you know, this back in high school and college. But Mm -hmm. um, so I was always around it. But it wasn't interesting to me. That wasn't something I was pursuing or because. I was okay with life yeah. at that time. Did that ever get in the way of relationships you had with other people, either the fact that you were drinking or that you weren't drinking alcoholically? I don't think so. I, I mean, I'm sure I missed out on a few dates because I wasn't going not interested in drinking and they might have wanted me to drink like they were drinking, but, um, but I was pretty sheltered. Sheltered, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I get it. So you get out of college and... Start working. Start working. <laughs> And the stress was very hard. Mm. All of a sudden now I have an apartment, I have bills, you know. I was, I turned into an adult overnight and I didn't like it. Did you go into a field that you wanted to be in or or was it a job that you were just able to get? I I became a paralegal. Mm -hmm. I felt it was expected to be a lawyer in my family because my father, my uncle, my grandfather, everybody And so I went to work at a law firm as a paralegal. And actually, it was fun. I met a group of girls, and we were all working on the same case, Mm. kind of a famous case. And so that was very interesting. But that got into more, you know, everybody's partying and that type of thing. And I think that just kind of, I think things just kind of slowly built. It wasn't a, a specific thing that happened that I can think of. And those were the days when there was a, still a lot of drinking going on in people's offices and within companies. and Yes, office parties. Office parties. Mm-hmm. So you had your share of those along the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Huh. And that's what everybody did. And I, and I got to the point where I wanted to fit in. What was your enjoyment level of that job? The particular case we were working on. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, there have been books written about it, and we were deciphering through the information. And I've always liked mysteries and, you know, research and that type of thing. So, And I liked the girls. I met almost everybody that was working on it was fresh out of college. Mm-hmm. And so I met a lot of really nice people. So you were able to hang out with contemporaries after college. Yes. People your own age, yes. people who are of similar interests. Yes. What were your plans regarding 
pursuing a degree in law. Well, I tried to go to law school. I, I took the test and I, my scores were low. I think I have a learning disorder that was never diagnosed because I had always had trouble in college with retaining things. And mm -hmm. um, I was able to get out of college though, but not high level. And so when I took the LSAT, my scores were low. I thought my father would have a connection to get me in, mm -hmm. which he could not do. <laughs> and so I gave up that. And what was interesting is after I was at this one law firm, I switched to corporate law, and um, which I did not like at all. Mm -hmm. And that was the time my boss said, you need to come into work or you're gonna, we're going to have to let you go because it was so boring to me. It was a bunch of SEC stuff and yeah. reading contracts, and, um, and I think that's when things started getting bad. So your dissatisfaction at that particular job in the corporate law may have led to additional drinking, yes. which then led to absences from work and, and that kind of behavior. Correct, mm -hmm. yeah. What was the response from your family to you're not going to law school? Was there an expectation that was somehow not met? And how did you feel about that? No, I, you know, I don't know that they expected it from me. And um, what was interesting is my stepsister went to law school. Uh -huh. I'm from one of those years, mine and ours family, because my father right. remarried when he mm -hmm. was sober and to a widow with mm -hmm. four children, and then they had one. so. It's one of those type of things, but uh, none of the males went to law school, but my stepsister did, and um, and she's very smart. And I came to find out that they weren't really that. I don't know. I mean, I kind of wonder now if it's a male female thing, but mm. but um, it wasn't that big of a deal. And she hated law school. She hated being a lawyer, huh. and um, but she also did it for my father. She wanted to please him. Yeah, so there were a lot of expectations for her, but not the same for you. I don't think so. I don't. I think because maybe I wasn't around my father all the time. Like he had basically adopted that family because he was supporting them financially, and their father had passed away. So I think because we didn't have this much of a connection in the same household, mm -hmm. um, he didn't have the same expectation. Hmm. Parents who expect their kids to follow in their footsteps. Mm -hmm. You know, what's funny is one of the things that impressed my father the most, this is uh -huh. a funny story, is, you know, I thought going to law school will impress him. Well, he loved the show <laughs> Hee Haw. Do you remember oh, yeah. that? Yeah, I love that Well, show. <laughs> I decided to take a leisure learning class just on my own and take uh -huh. clogging. Oh, clogging. Yes. And I told him that, and he thought that was the most wonderful thing in the world because of Hee Haw. And I thought, Really? Here I'm busting myself to like, you know, to work hard and go maybe go to law school and do all and you're impressed with clogging. <laughs> <laughs> so it just kind of goes to show like what's going on in my head is not always the truth. So the expectations from your father for your future weren't quite what yeah. you thought they were. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, so, one day you might have gotten on Hee Haw. Well, that's right, because he loved that show. You know? He loved that kind of music and would sing all the time when we were little kids in the car. Yeah, and, yeah um, I guess so. That. It's actually kind of a fond memory. You're in this situation where you're working for a corporate law firm as a paralegal. Mm -hmm. It's boring. Mm -hmm. You're drinking. Mm -hmm. 
When did you first start to notice that it was becoming a problem? When my work addressed me about my absenteeism. Yeah. What was your response to them at that point? Well, that, you know, I was going to get out of there because how dare you think, you know, I'm not a good employee or that y'all don't want me. But I think the pivotal moment was when I realized I was going to disappoint my friend who was willing to hire me uh-huh. in doing something similar because she uh-huh. was a friend. She had, you know, really made stretched out to say, I'll help you. I'll you can come work over here. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I was going to do the same thing to her. And I did not want to do that to her. She was Mm. a friend. Mm. She was giving me a second chance. Mm -hmm. It's like that. I couldn't guarantee to her that I wouldn't do it. And she didn't know what was going on. Yeah. So like one of those things about being an alcoholic, you can't predict what your behavior is going to be, nor, I guess, in any way guarantee what your behavior is going to be. That's right. So you were faced with a situation with her of... Letting her down. Letting her down because you knew at some point that you were going to drink? Mm-hmm. Huh. It was like the monkey was always on my back. Did it ever occur to you to just say, I'm going to stop then and just won't do it? Well, that was my hope, but I couldn't guarantee it. I was in that place where I couldn't guarantee it. I get and it. I didn't want to put her in the position to have to address me or yeah. confront me. Where did you go for counsel at this point? Where did you go for support or, I mean, did you go to your your parents? Did you go to friends? Where do you seek out answers? I actually did go to my father at first and um, asked him if he could get me a copy of the big book. Really? Because I had walked around downtown Houston. I had gone to a bookstore looking for a copy. And they don't sell that. And, um, And so he gave it to me. He gave me a copy. He didn't ask really any questions or anything. Were you surprised by that? Well, I just didn't know where to get a book, you know, and I want, you know, I I like to read. And I thought, well, if I can just get the book, I can find out more about this. So I got the book and then he asked me later if I'd read the book or what I thought. Uh And I told him he could have it back, (laughs) but I never gave it back. But he didn't push anything. He didn't try to get involved. And what ended up happening is um, because of my depression, I had asked to go to therapy because he he was willing to pay for me to go to therapy once a week. And um, I had this therapist that kept pressing going to group therapy, Uh which I did not want to go to because I don't like talking in a group, which that was an issue when I first came into AA, is talking in a meeting or anything. I finally agreed to go to group, and people were sharing in a group, and I was not sharing, but I was crying, Mm. and I'm not a crier. That is not my first response, and just by coincidence, I saw a friend of mine. I didn't know her very well. She had been in treatment for like nine months. I had bumped into her, and she was sharing, and and that's what kind of gave me hope to go to meetings. And she quit going to the group therapy, but she stayed, she has one more year than I do. And um, she stayed, you know, in the meetings and then I would see her. And what was interesting is my sponsor and her sponsor were tight. And we became like a little foursome, which was very Mm -hmm. beneficial in the very beginning because I had a little core group 
and we were always together and doing fun things. Mm. And um, so I needed that, just the power of the people. Were you still doing the group while you were going into AA? Yes. There was an overlap there? Yes, there was an overlap. I had somewhat the same kind of situation, because I was going to a men's therapy group, and I had just started AA. And I remember when I'd go to therapy that day, I'd say, I don't need to go to AA because I, you know, I considered AA and mm -hmm. therapy to be about the same thing. I didn't really get what the program was about. But I remember I got mm. kicked out of that therapy group. I remember the therapist mm. and he said, you're toxic. You know, you're getting in the way of everybody else's situation. Mm -hmm. You need to leave. And I felt devastated. I thought, oh, my God, I got kicked out of psychotherapy. What the heck is going on? I remember going back to AA, back to the club that I used to go to that I got sober in. And I didn't know what to do. I hadn't been sober that long. I didn't have a sponsor or whatever else. But I brought it to maybe the first person who talked to me and said, I just got kicked out of therapy. And he said to me, you know, you can get kicked out of a lot of things, but you will never get kicked out of AA. Um consider this what you've been kicked into, so to speak. But your experience in therapy. The two helped me together. And what was interesting is before I went into therapy, I remember specifically thinking, if I drink before I go into this therapy session, I'm not gonna get anything out of it. Huh. So what's the point of going? And so that kind of started me like, I'm not gonna do any mind altering things because I'm going to therapy so that I could start to feel. And I remember the first time, I don't even remember what was being said, but I couldn't control tears and I don't know why. It was like a release. And, um, and that's when I knew that I was in the right place and I, I needed additional help. So your father, he never really forced the issue or talked to you about it. Were you disappointed by the fact that he wasn't showing that kind of interest? No, I think he, he was always like that. I think that was, um, I won't say part of the problem because I'm not blaming him, but, um, but he was very emotionally unavailable. I see, yeah. His whole focus, yeah. in fact, in his um, obituary, they said that his primary focus was either work Texas football, he went to UT, or um, family. Hmm. And even my stepmother said, but I can't tell you what order. And I think it was the law, then it was football, then it was family. So you got kind of the short end of that particular yes. stick, didn't you? Yes. Well, that's tough. Yeah. That's tough. That emotional unavailability of a parent is very, we don't notice the harm from it until many, many years yes. later. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was, uh, I think he was a workaholic. I think he transferred his alcoholism into working because now all of a sudden he went from two children to seven and he did well. But I've, you know, just family of origin and, you know, it's a family disease. I'd say all my siblings are addicts huh. in some form or fashion, some one in recovery and most not. So you've got one sibling in recovery mm -hmm. and the, the rest are mm -hmm. doing whatever they're doing? Mm -hmm. huh. Still. 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 Yeah. So after a couple of years, you were in therapy. You were also getting help for the depression mm -hmm. at the same time. Tell me about when you first got into AA. What, what actually precipitated your going to your first meeting, asking for help and identifying, saying, I'm Janet and I'm an alcoholic? I think when I was unemployed mm -hmm. and I realized I was sitting in this little one-bedroom apartment in a nice part of town, mm -hmm. and I felt hopeless. It's kind of like, is this it? Like, 
Hmm. I was young, you know, had the world, you know, to look forward to, and I, I was stuck. I just felt stuck. I remember one time lying in the bathtub this, mm. since I lost my job, and I thought, I will never have another job. Mm. And I, I knew that was crazy. It's mm-hmm. like you're in your 20s. Of course you will. But everything seemed like this was the end. Everything was just going to get worse, not better. I wasn't looking like optimistic into the world. I was looking at like this is awful. Did you attribute any of that to the Depression at the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. So you could blame the depression for issues that were really maybe being caused or exacerbated by the alcohol. Mm-hmm. That must have made it even more difficult. It was confusing. Plus, when I stopped drinking, the depression didn't go away, Yeah, so to speak. But I still held on to that, that it was a depressant. So I knew I couldn't go back to that. I yeah. needed an antidepressant. <laughs> I get that. So I sought out trying to get medication, which was also very tricky because it's really an individual thing. You know, I don't know if it's, you know, your your brain chemistry messes up. I don't know any of that. But I just was looking for an answer. Did you get any feedback from your psychiatrist at the time about your drinking? Not that I remember. Hmm. I know I kept a lot of it. I think I kept a lot of it secret. And um, I know with my friends I did. I only had maybe one friend that would, was kind of seeing what was going on. And it became a big joke that one time I said, oh, it only takes one drunk to get me to drink or something <laughs> instead of drink to, you know. And it became a joke. But what I would do is I would indulge before I would go out and meet my friends mm. because I didn't want them to see me drinking and um, the act of drinking, so to speak, or when it got to the point where I really just wanted to stay at home and be by myself and drink. I didn't even want to go be with my friends. That wasn't fun to me. It was just uncomfortable. I, I was curious, how, how did that make you feel when you were having to do that before going to meet your friends, knowing that you were kind of artificially preparing yourself? Well, I know I was using it to, so that I would have courage that I was so afraid uh, of life and just being a part of the world that I know for sure that I needed that to be able to face, even to face fun, to face people and stuff. So it was more of a liquid courage. Did, did your friends know that? Did they have any inkling that you were, you were doing that, that you were drinking before going out with them? or Just the one friend. Which she thought it was odd that when I did have like one drink, I think it was a party or something, that I was already acting drunk. Because huh. she didn't know uh, about before. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Did she ever confront you on that? Mm-mm. No. No, they either thought it was funny. Isn't that something? Mm-hmm. All those people around us who we look back on now and say, they, they enabled us to a great extent because they never said anything and I guess at the end of the day, maybe they didn't notice anything because they were too tied up in their own. That's it. I think they were all kind of, although most of them didn't turn out to be alcoholic. Hmm. One did. One did. But I always thought she was worse than I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did she get sober? Today she is. She's, she's gone through her process, though. And, uh, I mean, hardcore, CPS, hmm. you know, just all sorts of things, DWI, things like that. So um, I have a lot of compassion for her. And to this day, I mean, I don't know if she has three years or 10 years. She's she's still pretty closed-mouthed about it because she doesn't live in town. 
And, uh, but whenever, I have a little girls group from junior high, high school, college. There are about 10 of us that get together all the time and uh, once a year, and she's one of them. And for a long time, they quit inviting her mm-hmm. because um, she would black out or we'd find her in the closet or something. Fortunately, when we started getting together, I was sober by then. So most people just thought I was a nerd. Like, she doesn't like to drink. I've never, I've been funny about my anonymity. I don't go around telling people. They just think, well, she doesn't like it. And they accept it. And nobody, all this big group of friends, nobody thinks anything different. I mean, I go to everything. I'm invited to everything. I just don't drink. But my friend that was blacking out, she, she'll seek me out because she does know. Huh. And I, in fact, I'm not even sure how she knows if I finally shared it with her or what, but. But you're thinking she is sober today. Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. So your service to her over the years mm-hmm. may have been the thing that helped save her. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's a good feeling when we realize it has, especially if they stay sober. If they don't or they die, then, well, there's that. But uh, that's tough. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who have never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. So what did your bottom look like at the end? Just isolation and depression, I think. I didn't ever have any trouble with the law or driving or obviously a job, a job issues, but um, just my, my life got smaller. Did you seek a way out at all during that time? And what did you do to try and change your situation or did you just feel stuck with it? I think that's when I started going to therapy. Mm-hmm. And then, and then that led to AA. I, it wasn't my therapist that told me about AA. I just knew AA was there. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I can't really say what the catalyst was that made me go. Um, what were your first meetings in AA like? What, when you first walked through the door after you decided, well, I'll go to AA, I already know what it is, but uh, I'll go to a meeting. What was your first meeting like? Scary. Well, it was a lot of strangers. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't have friends that I was with going to meetings with, so I felt pretty alone. I'll bet. Um, it was just very uncomfortable. I just sat through the uncomfortableness and just continued to come back. Um, Did you raise your hand and say, my name is Janet and I'm an alcoholic? No. <laughs> when, no. They, when they asked if there were newcomers, did you identify? Um, I might have. But I certainly, I was one to come in late, sit in the back, and leave early. I did not do much um, other than that. Now, at one point, I was going more to a club, 
and I would go after work. And I can't remember if the meeting started at 6.30 and I got off work at 5.30. So it did help me a little bit to hang out at the club in the lounge Mm -hmm. and talk to some people until I would go into the meeting. I I really think it was people reaching out to me saying, do you want to go to dinner? Do you want to go to a movie? Like, you know, we can do other things than just the meeting. And, uh, And that helped me start to get to know people. How long was it before you actually started to feel comfortable in AA? Years. <laughs> years. Is that a lot of years or a few years? I'd say <laughs> somewhere in between a lot. <laughs> no, for a long time. In fact, interestingly enough, when I started coming to this particular club, uh-huh. because this wasn't my regular group, I started coming more after COVID, that um, I found the same feelings coming back of that anxiety where I was shaking when I would share hmm. and did not want to be called on. Or in the past, if I thought I was going to be called on, I would jump up and go to the bathroom, mm-hmm. you know, and hope they didn't see me. It was, I, to- I wanted to stay anonymous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's funny, I still like to sit in the back and I think I have a lot of anxiety. <laughs> well, yeah, I yeah. get that. I used to, when I was new in the program, I would I would come late. I would leave early, but I did something else. I would get up and leave when people said something I didn't like. If they said something I didn't agree with, I would literally get up and leave the meeting. I think I've done that before. Yeah. 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 Did you get a sponsor immediately? or I tried to get a sponsor. Well, in the beginning, somebody approached me and said, um, you know, because they're looking out for newcomers, and they were suggesting, I've shared this before, meditation books. Well, at least get a meditation book, because I you know, wanted to buy the literature, you sure. know. And I specifically remember this one girl that was way too happy, and she um, just bubbly. And I said, well, which meditation should I book should I get? And she said, oh, get the... She said, get the uh, black one. or I can't remember now if it was the orange or the black. Uh-huh. But I, I remember specifically getting the one she didn't tell me to get. Mm. Like, as that's how rebellious I was. It's like, I don't like this girl. I don't like her talking to me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got the other book. What was interesting is after coming to meetings for a while, mm-hmm. I started to like this girl mm. because she was happy. But in the beginning, that was very scary to me to be happy and because I was so used to being depressed. But then later on, when I got serious about the program, I used to go with my, my mother and my stepfather. My, my stepfather was an alcoholic. And, uh, and they would go hunting every weekend. And I would go hunting with them during hunting season. Um, but they drank, and I didn't want to drink. But I didn't want to be alone. So it was easier for me to go with them hunting and not drinking than it was to be at home alone and possibly drinking. Because I wasn't going to drink with my parents. I mean, that just, Mm. even my stepfather, I did consider him as a dad. He was very good to me. But one time, it was a hunting weekend. I, we finished, we drove back to Houston. I was sitting in the cafeteria, literally sitting on my Mm -hmm. hands because I was going to go to a meeting in a couple hours. And I saw two people Mm -hmm. that I knew from the meetings, and I ignored them. Mm -hmm. I went to the meeting uh, down in the medical center a couple hours later, and those two people got on the same elevator that I got on in the parking garage. And one of the girls said to me, 
how are you doing? I said, not very good. She said, do you have a sponsor? And I said, no. And she said, I'll sponsor you. She said, if you will work through the steps and sponsor someone else. And that was the agreement. And what I found out later is that she had just recently finished the steps. And the condition her sponsor gave her is, I will give it to you if you promise to carry it on and take someone else through the steps. So she was looking for what we called back then a pigeon. And so I was her pigeon. And so I was desperate enough that I said, okay. And, um, and that girl is not sober. How long did she stay sober? Seven years. Seven years. Mm-hmm. How far into the program were you when, when she became your sponsor? Less than two years, I think. Because the, the first girl with the meditation book, I, I attempted, but I only got through like a fifth step with her. Yeah. And then I didn't do anything else. But when I, I asked this other girl when I could find myself white-knuckling it because I was in trouble, um, I'd say it was less than a couple of years. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think of that as like divine intervention, just the way that whole situation happened with seeing her. And then, you know, the elevator. Because I probably wouldn't have asked her because she was kind of serious and kind of yeah. scary. Huh. But I respected her recovery, too. How far do you think you were from actually going out and giving up on AA at that point before you met her, let's say the day before? Ooh, that's hard to say. Um, I don't know. I felt I felt pretty desperate, but I didn't know what to do. I guess if I knew to do anything, it was just go to the next meeting. Yeah, okay. So God arranged for this little encounter in the elevator, and she became your sponsor. Mm-hmm. Uh, did she get you started on the steps mm-hmm. pretty quickly? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So how long did it take you to get through them? I think just a few months. Mm-hmm. We went through them pretty quickly. And then a part of that deal was that you start sponsoring someone else. How, yes. What did that look like? Well, then I was out, like, looking around. I mean, then... <laughs> I think at that time I had like five sponsees. Like I was kind of on this roll. Wow. You know, and um, I think I felt so alive and so happy. But what was bad is that I found myself putting myself on a pedestal. Like y'all don't know how AA works. Because she was one of those that people would look up to. Like they were scared of her, you know. Well, now she's somewhat of a friend and has helped me through the hard stuff, knows the worst of the worst. And but all of a sudden I started to mimic her hmm. and um, almost like talking down to people like y'all can't get this. Uh-huh. And I remember that later because I thought that was what would intimidate me from being around her. And now I'm starting to do it to other people. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I think it's just the stages you go through of being humble or, you know, being grandiose or that type of thing. So you were already at what, about three years when you started sponsoring? Uh, Probably less than that. We talk about the value of sponsorship. How important do you think it was at that point in your sobriety? I think it made all the difference. Hmm. I really believe in service work and and investing in somebody, Mm -hmm. whether or not, you know, the results are the, of what I want for them, it's that I feel like I'm giving my everything, my experience, strength, and hope to, that I might save somebody Yeah. and they can continue on. I really think that God put all those people in my 
life at that time to save me, not to save them. Yeah. What's ironic about that, and I've noticed the same thing, is that while we've been humbled into the process of realizing that in order to save ourselves, we have to help save others, or the flip side of that is our ego getting involved and saying, wow, I'm doing such a great job with these people. That's right. And one step away from that ego is the disease saying, maybe I'm above this now, or... It's dangerous. Or it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. Or, and I hate to see this happen, I hate to hear about it in meetings when people say, I'm not a good sponsor because the people I've sponsored have gone out and gotten drunk. Mm -hmm. Or I don't sponsor people because I'm not successful with it. And of course, you and I know, you always go back and say, well, did you stay sober? Yeah, well then it was successful. I can say that a hundred times to certain men and it won't make any difference. They still feel like they're failures at being sponsors. So obviously in that situation, all we can recommend is serve other types of service work. And, mm -hmm. and, and God bless them for what, being willing to go into the prisons or being willing to you know, be, be in a public information committee or, or be a GSR or set up the meeting or chair meetings, that sort of thing. Good thing about that. But like you, I started sponsoring men right after my sponsor got done with me. I didn't have a sponsor until I was sober almost a year, and mm -hmm. I nearly went out over not having a sponsor. And he showed me what to do and what, you know, how to sponsor other people. And it has, it's made all the difference in the world mm -hmm. over, over the years. And I don't think everybody is cut out to be a sponsor. I think what's helped me the most is, is to try to share my experience rather than my advice. Because that's what I would get into is, I mean, I've never had children. Yeah. I've never been a parent. I certainly can't tell somebody how to parent. I mean, I have things I think are probably better than another way, but I don't know. Yeah. So I have to remember, I don't, I've never experienced this. Well, the humility to admit and accept, I know what I know and I, I know what I don't know, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to try and give you what I don't know, mm -hmm. trying to convince you that I do. And mm -hmm. It's hard not to give advice though yes. as a sponsor, isn't it? Yes, it is. Because yes. we'd like, we, we so desperately want to help the other person that we just know if they do things this certain way, it's always frustrating when they don't. Um, what's interesting about that, you mentioned about children, is that when you get used to sponsees doing what you ask them to do and you see some real results and everything else, at least in my case, I know for other parents, we try that on our kids and it doesn't work the same way. No. You know, the sponsee will do what you ask him to do because he really, really wants the help. The kid, you give a lot of unex unsolicited experience, strength, and hope to, and they don't want to do it your way. Mm -hmm. they, they need to find out on their own. So to me, that's one of the big differences between sponsorship and parenthood right. is on one end, people want and need and desperately have to have what you've got. On the other side, they've got it whether they want it or not, mm -hmm. and then they pick and choose what they're willing to do and not do. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I have a wonderful sponsor now that knows me, has known me for a long, 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 long time, uh -huh. and she kind of cuts to the chase. She doesn't mother me, she doesn't, you know, but she can see straight through that. And it's interesting that I can be more honest with her than any other person. Yeah because I trust what she's telling me is the truth. Like there's just something about that, that I don't have to pretend I can be as dark as dark or as crazy as whatever. And she can cut through all that. And I really think she has my best welfare in mind. And, 
and she works that kind of program too. That's a wonderful relationship to have too. It's priceless. It's priceless. You get sober at this point, now we've got a number of years, actually decades in between then and now. Mm -hmm. As you look back on your sobriety, can you tell me certain things that stick out to you that were times when you didn't know whether you could make it or had it not been for your program being right there, things might have turned out way different for you? I really haven't had a desire to go back out or it's been too critical because I've always been a meeting goer. And, and, um, and I also have a lot of friends now in the program. So that's helped. I, I Probably my biggest handicap was having a healthy relationship with a boyfriend. It was dating. I mean, I've said, I don't think people should date <laughs> for like the first 10 years of sobriety. I think um, that that is, was the trickiest thing for me is to learn how to have a give and take healthy relationship hmm. with anybody. I mean, if it's a boss, I respect a boss's authority you know, sometimes sibling stuff, but there's just, you've been together all your life, you know, so it's, but something about trying to have a true partnership mm -hmm. is probably the, the closest I've ever come to going out was a resentment with a boyfriend. What, what did you do around that? Well, I went to a meeting. Uh -huh. I didn't really share about it though. Huh. And then I got in my car and I started driving around the 610 loop just to burn off the steam. And, um, of course, back then there weren't cell phones and that type of thing. But I remember just thinking, just don't get out of the car. Just don't get, like, I had to let the anger kind of dissipate and distract myself, you know, from things. And, um, but that was probably the closest. It wasn't like a, you know, some people talk about, oh, a happy time. They see this bubbly this or that. It was, when they say it's the number one offender, that's the closest I've come to relapse and was a resentment. Was a resentment. Did you have other times in your sobriety where you had a resentment and you kind of thought back to that experience and realized you had to take quicker action? Yes, yes. I don't ever let it build up like that anymore. Hmm. When they say you're as sick as your secrets, I, I agree with that too, that I think, um, you know, if something's bothering you, I mean, I've, you know, I've almost had gone to the other side where I sh overshare. <laughs> <laughs> And people are like, okay, uh, why, you know, if, anyway, it's just too much. Like, you don't need to share so much or vent. Or just recently, yeah. I was venting, and I was texting my sponsor and venting and venting, and she said, you better be careful about all this venting. And uh, it's okay to share, but just venting is not solving the problem. But I, I realized I was like a pressure valve, you know, that I had to let go of that or I would get into trouble. Because, like I said, I'm not a crier. Right. So my first um, response is anger. And it's usually something that made me sad. Mm. But sad wasn't safe for me, so it was easier to be angry. Anger is powerful. And I would get caught up in the anger. And usually anger is some kind of response to some fear that we've got. Usually a hurt. A usually hurt. a hurt. A hurt. For me. So as you realize that relationships were a, a real uh, tough thing to navigate. Mm -hmm. How did you use your program to, to deal with that? Well, I started going to some other programs. Did you? Uh -huh. <laughs> yes, I did. Because um, I realized I was, um, I didn't know how to not be dependent or too 
I won't say interdependent, but codependent. Co yeah, codependent, mm -hmm. or or it was like for I think the first five years of my sobriety, I never went on a date. I wasn't gonna let anything mess with what I was doing here. You know, of course, people thought that was odd, like, because I didn't get married till I was 43, and I remember being at my stepbrother's wedding, and it was literally my 40th birthday mm -hmm. on that that day, and one of his friends was sitting next to me and he said is today your birthday and I said yes it is and he said how come you've never been married he said are you a fatal attraction or something <laughs> and uh, which if you remember that oh, movie yeah. <laughs> and um and it kind of hurt my feelings but I thought because I I didn't know how to do that you know it was my whole focus was on recovery at the time that's where I needed to stay planted and I couldn't get distracted by any of that because I was afraid because of my past with, you know, relationships that it would deter me from wanting to have this as first. So was that a conscious decision you made to put that attitude between you and the relationship or did it just work out that way that the relationships weren't coming your way and that became a good reason why they weren't? I don't think it was a conscious decision. I think it's just all I did was work or go huh. to meetings. Work and go huh. to meetings. And that was my primary focus. And it's hard to go to meetings and not have friendships and the opportunity for romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. What was your experience with that? Well, it was always tricky because, I mean, I had some interest and, so, I mean, I shared earlier that probably I did um, end up dating a little bit um, and I had a fun boyfriend he was so uh -huh. fun and everybody talked about he had come back I didn't know him back you know at one time but when he was first in and how fun and funny was and but we fought a mm. lot and come to find out later he had not stayed sober he couldn't get 30 days but I didn't know all that this is how blind, I'd like to claim blonde, but <laughs> blind, <laughs> that um, it got to a point where, I, you know, I started to recognize some things and because uh -huh. um, I kind of had my blinders on. And I said one day, I said, it's either you or my sobriety. And we broke up. Yeah, good thing you did, I guess. If he only had 30 days. Was he trying to convince you he had more than that? I think it was a secret. It was a secret. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. He, uh, in fact, I just found out the other day, he, today he has 24 days. Oh my gosh. And this was decades ago. Yeah, and so I've been doing a lot of reflecting because he was a wonderful person. He was fun, funny, and, uh, but our lives went two different directions. So you didn't see him after that early on? Well, you saw him early on and then you hadn't seen him until I may, I think we kept up a little bit, but just very friendship kind of way. Yeah. So, of course, you're married now mm -hmm. to a man who is sober is sober, and he is one of my good friends, and I've seen him in this meeting forever. And how did that come about? Well, interestingly enough, we were at a job together. I did not meet him in AA. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were at a job together. I, I think we were outside because he was a smoker and mm -hmm. I was outside talking to him and I asked him why he was living in Houston because he was telling me where he, he was, you know, moved from 
uh, Fort Worth and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I said, what made you move? And he, it was interesting because he basically got down on his knee like this was, you know, he's really just, you know, sharing this deep part of himself about <laughs> how he had gotten sober, you know, come, you know, with just a truck full of his stuff and asked yeah. his parents if he could live with them and et cetera, et cetera, because he was going to get sober. He, uh-huh. he wanted to quit drinking and quit his rock and roll band and all that. And I said, oh, really? And so, I mean, I think he thought I was going to shock me. And I said, oh, I'm an AA. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I stumped him because I had a year more than he did. So we decided to go on our first date. And uh, the second or third date, we went to a party. And he said, I wanted to know if you want to go to this party. And I went to this party with him. And the girlfriend of the host, I knew her from my meetings. And she answered the door. And then we were going to his friend, who was her boyfriend's thing. So that was just kind of like it's a small world. And how did we never meet in all these years? Because I think we we actually got married on his 14-year AA birthday. It happened to fall on a Saturday. Uh-huh. But all these years of us both getting sober, we never met at meetings or went to the same place. So that was about 25 years ago? Yes, it was 25 years ago, exactly. Okay, because I, I feel like I've known him yeah. for over 20 years. And I remember meeting you a number of years ago mm-hmm. in the meetings, and you guys would go to meetings together. Did you do that for a period of time, or did you go to your own meetings? I went to my own. Always kept that separate. Yeah. Or I want not always, but for a long time, I felt that it was more comfortable that we're not doing this together. I felt more free to share. Was that an intuitive feeling on your part to to take a look at your relationship and realize that it would be difficult to sit in a room and share at a level that you were used to sharing if your husband was sitting right there? Or my boyfriend. Or your boyfriend, yes. for that matter. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. Yeah, I kept it separate for a long time. So how long did you guys date before you got married? Two years. And so you were going to meetings, you were going to your own separate meetings? Mm-hmm. I always in, it's always interesting to me whenever I meet couples who met in the program and got uh, you know got married as a res, either result or they met outside the program and it turned out they were both in the program of how they keep their programs to themselves in a way that is beneficial to a marriage does that make sense mm-hmm. what's that been like for you well I mean I've tried not to sponsor him <laughs> And vice versa. I think the whole goal of the marriage is to grow spiritually. Yeah. And I think for myself, I felt so grounded in what I had before I met him that it's just been a natural part of the relationship. Mm. I mean, it's not like we sit around talking AA lingo or any of that kind of stuff, but I think it's just an inherent part of being who, where we've come from. I think there's a lot more acceptance there with what goes on. I mean, I definitely see it as a big benefit in a marriage. I think every marriage could um, have that, but, or at least it's helped us. And um, I know that I'll go to my sponsor before I'll go to my spouse with an issue. I'm the same way. And you know what's interesting about that, Janet, is that years ago, whenever I would call my sponsor and my wife was in the room and I was talking to him, she would hear only my side of the conversation and she was, I guess, filling in in her mind what my sponsor must be saying to me. And I'd get off the phone and 
I'd be all bubbly about some great piece of advice he gave me. And her response to me was, I've been telling you that for years. <laughs> You know, yeah. and why is it that Mike can say stuff to you that I've said to you is what's so you know what the solution to that was whenever he calls, if I'm in the same room or car with her, I call him back uh-huh. or, or whatever else. We keep our phone calls separate from our relationships with our mm-hmm. wives because it's real easy to feel like, how can Howard confide in Mike about this, but he can't confide? And what I've said for years is, wait a second, my marriage isn't my only relationship in the world. Mm -hmm. And there are certain things that men can only talk to other men about, women can only talk to other women about. There's some things that only alcoholics can talk with other alcoholics about that they can't talk to a non-alcoholic about. So what I think has happened over the years, what's evolved in my sobriety, is that there's a respectability to that. Mm-hmm. In other words, she res- she respects that, and I respect her if I get start talking too much about how great other people are to the exclusion of how great she is. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, I do think, and it may sound weird, is is I think there's n- there's no other intimate relationship as a sponsor to sponsee. It's not the same as a husband to a wife. It's actually more intimate um, to my sponsor, even with my spouse. And my spouse has seen the bad sides, too. It's not something I'm comfortable sharing. With a sponsor, I will share because I want help from that person Mm. that has been guided, that really knows my garbage. Sure, they have the context of knowing you from the beginning. Yes, yeah. What, what kind of challenges have you experienced that you can look at that and say, oh, that's a tough thing to deal with, you know, with having a spouse in the program? Or flip side, how have you looked at being married to someone in the program and said, thank God I'm married to that guy and not to somebody who doesn't understand? Well, I will say that because I used to love to date alcoholics. <laughs> Sober alcoholics? Both. <laughs> While you were sober or before that? No, before. Okay, I get it. Before. Yeah. And, um, but usually the ones that were still drinking, especially if I was. Uh-huh. But, um, but, and it's not a conscious thing. It's right. just if looking back at my history. And so it's interesting when I'm talking about relationships that I had a sponsor one time tell me, I want you to write down the ideal things that you would want in a partner. Make a list uh-huh. of the things that you want. If you could have what you wanted. And the top thing on my list is that he was sober. Hmm. In fact, the first few. And the second was that he was um, expanding his relationship with God. Hmm. Those were the top two things that I wanted somebody that was on the same path. Mm-hmm. It didn't mean they had to be in AA, but that they were doing this self-growth, this um you know, spiritual development, but they didn't have to be in the program. And then there were a couple other little things, but, um, and my husband had actually all of them, but one of my list. Wow. Which was interesting. Was that sufficient? It was. Hmm. You can't always get everything you want. Well, yeah. (laughs) But it wasn't, it was at the bottom of the list. That's good. Yeah. It wasn't a deal breaker as I call it. So it wasn't, I'll deal with this because I know I can change it. No, it wasn't the top of the list. The most important was somebody that was sober and trying to grow spiritually. And as I've heard him share in meetings over the years, he he punches both of those boxes. His his spiritual search or his development is much stronger than mine. 
that's more important than his relationship with me, which in some respects probably should be, whereas I don't know that I could say that for myself at times. I mean, that's my ultimate goal, but I, I forget, <laughs> you know, which is why I come back to meetings, because I have to be reminded of my spiritual search. Would I be safe in saying your relationship sounds satisfying and good with your husband? Mm-hmm. I kind of thought so. Mm-hmm. Because I see him, and he seems to be reflective of somebody who's in a good relationship. And I see mm -hmm. you, and I, I kind of sense the same thing. Mm -hmm. As we come full circle to your experience getting sober, what you went through as a kid, your family, you said you lost your mother a couple years ago or last year? Yeah, I lost my mother two years ago and my stepmother a year ago. So now I'm an orphan. Yeah, now you're an orphan. Which is, that's even hard when you're this age. What was it like getting through that at the time? I think with my mother, um, I saw her suffering, and that was sad. And um, I think with my stepmother, it was more shocking because she had not been sick for a long time. I mean, she had some issues, but I expected her. She was five years younger than my mother. And they were in very good friends. And I mean, not, you know, they didn't go to lunch all the time or anything, but Thanksgiving or holidays or fit something with the grandchildren, mm -hmm. my brother's children, you know, they, everybody get together. So it was all very, I mean, at our dinner table, there'd be my, <laughs> my father, my stepmother, my mother, my brother, his ex-wife, <laughs> his ex <laughs> <laughs> and I used to get upset that all these strange, you know, all these people that are no longer in the family were at the table. And my sponsor used to go, that's your family. <laughs> so, I mean, everyone got along fine, you know, that we weren't, you know, talking every day, but it's all good. And um, so I think it was, they were both very different. I was probably harder with my mother because I was in charge of all that. And I've had a funny relationship with my brother and some things with my mother but um so that was probably harder after my dad died which is uh 19 years ago now and my mother which was about 10 or 11 years ago the very first place i went was this club mm -hmm. i told people where what had happened where i was at and after the meeting you know people kind of gathered around there was that warm feeling what did you experience right after the, the passing of your mother and your stepmother? Well, I'll tell you a funny thing about that is when uh, my mother passed, I had actually, right before I found out, I had called my sponsor because I was angry about a situation involving her going to the hospital and stuff like that. And so I was venting and getting it out. And then I hung up and then not five minutes later, the doctor called and said they were doing CPR, mm. and I said, well, it, she has a do not resuscitate. So I hung up, and I immediately called my sponsor right back. And, you know, she's not one that I can get all the time. She has a very busy life and all that, and she picked up, uh -huh. and, um, and she's actually was a nurse in her profession and all that, and she just, it was just all the timing. It just seemed very, I just did the next right thing. The next right thing, like I called my boss at work and, you know, they wanted me to take time off. And I said, no, I'd rather not, you know, for because I had a lot of work stuff right. going on, too. 
I never really felt, I felt like I had been grieving it while she'd been sick mm. and, and changing. But I really credit my sponsor for just, she was there. Yeah. Even though lots, I never call, rarely ever call her in the morning, or sometimes I'll text and say, is there a good time to call? But I'll go weeks and months without talking to her. And, um, and then sometimes I'm talking to her two or three times a week. So this was just one of those funny times. I was so angry. I couldn't stay in my anger. Yeah. And I needed some perspective, and then it all happened within the same 15 minutes. Sounds like the spiritual strength showed up for you exactly when you needed it. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yes. That's astounding. Yeah. And I could do the right thing. I could just go to the next step and the next step. That, to me, is, if it's not divinely inspired, it's divinely arranged, you know? Yes. I mean, the, the, yes. the, the time frames and that kind of thing are just astounding. I've, I've seen a lot of gifts. I, I see in the big picture, uh-huh. like if I can look at it, like um, we were able to recently move. I found a, a house that I really liked. I've, I've been kind of mm-hmm. looking. And, and long story short, it's like I, I wouldn't have had the time. I wouldn't have been able to find it. I wouldn't have been able to move. I wouldn't. There were just a lot of things I would not have. I've gotten really close to my stepsister ever since all this has happened. So I've seen a lot of things that I couldn't have known that I needed or wanted that badly until I had some of these losses. And then these other areas of my life are starting to grow that are more valuable. To see the gifts that come out of the loss is an amazing feeling, isn't it? Yes, later. But it's one of those things like maybe I know it, well, this is a good thing. And there's that realization of, wait, this sounds familiar. Maybe there's a familiar solution. And then we start looking at the steps. So we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And then, you know, the Mm -hmm. aha sunrise or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's an amazing, amazing experience, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you've, you've made incredible, incredible progress from what you told me about was like <laughs> 39 years ago. <laughs> I hope so. You know, sometimes it's funny. You're talking about sponsees and stuff like that. Sometimes I look at, I have just a few sponsees, but uh, I have one in particular that just amazes, well, two amazes me when they talk that I think they're doing so much better. (laughs) (laughs) They've got like seven and 13 years, and I think, wow, that was brilliant. They learned their lesson well, that's all. (laughs) So they're teaching me more than, as they say, I'm just the conduit for, you know, I don't know. But one of them, she repeated back to me one time, and I only remember saying this to her, is um, when she asked me, I said, I'm happy to sponsor you but I will probably disappoint you. And um, because she's going to find out my humanness, you know, that I'm not perfect, that I'm not. The, and she it's helped her with her sponsees because um, we're all somewhat flawed trying to get better. Yeah. And as long as we stick around and do the things that we're supposed to do on a daily basis, this has just been wonderful. I, I, I admire, I honor your, your sobriety and the work that you put into the program. You're a beautiful person. I love you. And you're just, you know, it's, it's wonderful to be able to sit here and just to get to know you better. I mean, you and I have been in a lot of meetings for a lot of years, and yet we've never had an intimate discussion. And to me, this is the kind of thing that once it hits 
gonna, there's gonna be somebody out there who we'll never meet, we'll never know who gets inspired by, the, by your words today. And so I, I really wanna thank you for doing this. It's, I, it's meaningful for me, but other people are gonna find meaning and gifts in what you've said today as well, so. Well, thank you. I, that is my hope is that something might have touched somebody. Well, Janet, thanks again for doing this. I'll see you in the next meeting that we're in together. Yes, I'll look forward to it. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Janet H., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Consider it the hand of AA members reaching out to other alcoholics across the country and throughout the world. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.